We're preparing to look at the life of Elijah, but before we can understand the work of Elijah and his purpose, we have to understand the world that he was sent to preach into. We noticed last week that we saw uh, a lesson regarding Jeroboam in chapter 12 of 1 Kings where uh, Jeroboam fears that his newly formed nation of ten tribes that will now be called Israel going forward, when they return to Jerusalem to worship God, they are going to remember the reign of Rehoboam and, and want Rehoboam to be their king again and then have Jeroboam no longer be king and and him be killed. And so in dealing with that fear, he decides that he will set up a new worship system in Israel with golden calves at uh, Dan, which is the northern part of the nation, and at Bethel in the southern part of the nation, and making the argument for convenience, that it's too much trouble, and they've gone to Jerusalem for far too long, they need to just worship God with these idols. And that is the context in which we come into chapter 13. In fact, if you will look at how this sets up, the very end of 1 Kings 12 reads, So, speaking of Jeroboam, he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Verse 1 of chapter 13 By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. So I want you to see that there is no time marker, change of scene, or shift, that what we had at the end of chapter 12 is Jeroboam establishing the worship, Israel is preparing to engage in that worship, and we have Jeroboam about to initiate this worship when now God is going to send a man of God with a message to Jeroboam about uh, this worship. Now, this is a really neat chapter as we go through this. This might be one of the top 20 of uh, questionable scratching uh, scenes that comes along and so it is interesting to see the message that God wants to communicate to Israel and more importantly even also to us to instruct us in perhaps one of the more unusual scenes that comes along in Israel's history. So as we saw in chapter 13, verse 1, we have God sending a man of God. We're not going to get his name. You're going to have to follow along with, if we talk about a man of God, the man of God is the man sent by God from Judah to Bethel. And here's what he is going to do. Verse 2, by the word of the Lord, he cried against the altar Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. And that same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. 
Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Just picture that. This is a showstopper scene at this moment. And Jeroboam is preparing to initiate the sacrifices at this new location to the golden calf at the altar in Bethel. Man of God comes in and says, I'm going to have a message about this altar. Really interesting. He goes, altar, altar. And here's the message on this altar, basically Jeroboam, your false priests and their bones are all going to be burned on it. And as a sign, I'm going to have this altar split apart and the ashes pour out on it. Well, obviously, this is a condemnation against Jeroboam's worship. And so that's why Jeroboam reacts the way that he does. He stretches out his hand, commands and says, seize that man. And no sooner does he stretch out his hand and say, seize that guy, that his hand is unable to retract. You can just imagine what that looks like. As Jeroboam is pointing at him to seize him. And now suddenly his arm stuck. His arm is now withered up right there. And the altar splits apart and the ashes all pour out just like the man of God said (laughs) watch this verse 6 and the king said to the man of God intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored so the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift. Now you need to imagine this. If the king says, wow, you have restored my hand by pleading to the Lord. I would like for you to come back with me and I'm going to feed you and give you a gift. So it's coming from the king. So, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, $5 and a hamburger. This is going to be something quite uh, magnificent. This is going to be sizable that you have restored his hand and he wants to now give you a gift. However, verse 8. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. And so he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Fascinating scene as this all sets up. Jeroboam's worship is condemned. The sign happens just as the man of God said. You have Jeroboam's hand withering as he attempts to seize the man. And the man of God even makes intercession for him. And Jeroboam says, plead to your God for me about my hand. You know, I think I'd be like, no. Uh, you're, you're, you're a wicked, terrible person who created this false worship. He pleads with God and God heals him and it's restored. And then the offer is made for essentially riches and a wonderful meal. And the man of God says something rather unusual where he just says, God told me that I'm not even allowed to eat or drink while I'm here. And I'm not supposed to even take the same path back that I took when I came here. And I just want you to think about what this would have looked like for Jeroboam and what you would expect Jeroboam's response would be to all of this. 
Remember we talked about in the last lesson and, and on the Wednesday night that you have promises that have been made to Jeroboam that God would bless Jeroboam, establish his kingship and his rule if he would obey the ways of God and listen to all of his commands. That this division of the kingdom and establishing of Jeroboam was done by the hand of God. It was God's doing that, that this all took place. And so these promises are in place for Jeroboam. And now this huge warning comes by the man of God. The man of God comes to him and cries out against this false altar that has been set up. And if that were not enough, you've had multiple signs. The sign of the altar tearing in two and the ashes pouring out on it. A condemnation prophecy against that altar. In fact, naming a future king down the road and the events that will happen with human bones being burned on it. But perhaps the most personal is that your hand is withered. And by the intercession of the man of God, your hand's been restored. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 11 doesn't tell you what Jeroboam did. It's the, the story wants you to hold that in suspense for a minute. And we will come back to Jeroboam's response momentarily. But God wants to teach us something in the meantime, so that when we get to Jeroboam's response later, will really understand about what he's doing and what his response ultimately looks like. But right here at verse 11, God says, let's press pause for a moment and notice what we have happening. In verse 11, there is a certain old prophet who lived in Bethel. Now, this is the difficulty of tracking. We get the names of neither of them. So when we have the man of God, the man of God refers to the man from Judah who is sent by God to go condemn Jeroboam and condemn the altar. Now we are introduced to somebody who is called the old prophet. The old prophet, he lives in Israel. He lives in Bethel. And it says that his sons in verse 11 came and told him all that the man of God had done that day. And they told the father about what he'd said to the king. And the father here, this old prophet says, which way did he go? And tells them where they, where they went, saddles up his, his uh, donkey to go after him. And so in verse 14, he rides after that my man and, and, and finds him sitting under an oak tree and asks him, are you the man of God who has come from Judah? And he replied, I am. And so the prophet says to him, verse 15, come home and eat with me. And the man of God said, I cannot turn back or go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. But the old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as are you. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Now notice the next phrase. But he was lying to him. Now, we stop right here and go, why is this guy doing this? (laughs) This is terrible of this old prophet. But we're not told why. We're told in verse 19 instead, the man of God returned with him. He ate And drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. 
And he cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb with your ancestors. You know, I, I, I in my mind, I visualize things and paint pictures. And, and I, my, my feeling would be the, the, the man of God would have said to the old prophet, are you kidding me? <laughs> You you lied to me. You told me that God said. You told me that God said that he told you for me to do this. And now you prophesy against me for doing the very thing you said God told me to do. Verse 23, when the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. He went on his way and a lion met him on the road and killed him and his body was left on the road. Both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. And some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when that old prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, This is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him. As the word of the Lord had warned him. And so, man of God's judged. Now, what we're going to do is just observe a a couple of, of applications from this. Because one of the things that I think immediately just catches us is you read this and go, well, but what about the old prophet? This guy's terrible. This guy's a liar. This guy sinned. He's he he's worthy of judgment, and undoubtedly he is. And certainly should be held accountable for his sins. But what I want you to see is that by the omission of any information, condemnation, judgment, or anything about this old prophet, just nothing about it. It really is trying to hone in on a very particular point. That he wants to get at. And that point is simply this. That you have to believe the word of the Lord. Regardless of what other people say. Because our initial response. Is to say well this isn't fair. He tricked him. He lied. He's, he said he was had a message from God. He himself was an old prophet. In fact he is called a prophet. Clearly he has been a prophet. God even spoke to him again. And gave a prophetic message against the man of God. When he was at the table eating. And yet those things are not part of the consideration. The thing that is being zeroed in on us. Is that the man of God bore the responsibility of knowing God. God's word and following it and he wasn't to be distracted from that he wasn't supposed to listen to anything else it wasn't supposed to matter if some other prophet came along and said hey I've got a prophetic message from God and it contradicts the prophetic message that you had 
And I think that's what's so interesting about how this scene unfolds before us is because I think for us, we read about the man of God and we'd give him a pass and go, man, that's really terrible and how awful of the old prophet. But really the point is that we bear this responsibility that we know the word of God for ourselves. That you have here, this man of God would be unable to stand before the Lord and say, I should be vindicated of my decision because that old prophet over there tricked me. I mean, if we read this account, who one of us isn't rooting for the lion to go get the old prophet? Right? I mean, that seems to be fair. Go get the old prophet for lying, this poor man of God. Well, why does this happen to him? But except to communicate this very important point. You might remember that the Apostle Paul said something very similar. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he gives a warning where he tells them, I don't care if another apostle comes along and tells you something. In fact, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven who comes and speaks to you, if it's contrary to the gospel that you've received, that person's a curse. I don't care who they are. Now, we'd be won over by an angel. You say, well, it's an apostle. We have to listen. Paul says, I don't care if it's an apostle. I don't care if an apostle walked in. And I think about how powerful that is to say in a first century church, when there are apostles alive, that if an apostle comes in and tells you something that's contrary to the message that's been proclaimed, that apostle's accursed. Or to even say, I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care if the skies open up and the sun shines down and you hear voices that tell you something contrary to the gospel, then that's accursed. What we have told to us again and again is that the word of God is truly our only authority and not a person. And there is unfortunately for us a reminder that we have no excuse to make If we're deceived by a preacher, deceived by a teacher, deceived by a church, if other people tell us other things that seem right and plausible, we will be the ones who are held in account. That's what's happening for the man of God. Yet you're being deceived, but you shouldn't have believed the deception. Now, do you hear the connection to what's happening in Israel? where Jeroboam is telling them this is the way we worship God and Israel should have known better. And they should have stood up and said, no, this is not what God has said. We don't care that you're the king. We don't care that you've set up worship. We don't care that you've created this priesthood. We don't care that you've done all these things. You bear the personal responsibility to know what the will and the word of God and to respond to it accordingly. And friends, I think this is just so important for us because we live in a time right now where there, I don't know another way to put it except to say there is just so much religious noise. There is just so much religious noise. And there are so many different teachings about God, about Jesus, uh, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation, about eternity, and on and on we could go. There's just such a variety of teachings that has been thrown into this box of Christendom and Christianity as if all of these things are possible. There is religious noise all around us and we bear the responsibility as individuals 
to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong and to only follow the word of God. I've said this before. I will say it again. I'll say it again and again and again that you should never, ever, never, ever, please never, ever believe something because I said it. It doesn't matter if I say it. Who cares what I think? It doesn't matter. What matters is the word of God. And that's why when we teach, it is let's open it, let's read it and see it because who cares what I think? And who cares what I say? What does this say? That's the only authority. That's the only authority. And that's what we will be held accountable for. And that is the basis by which we will be judged. But this point leads to something really important. Because it's easy for us to agree with this right here and go, okay, we all believe the word of God. We're going to only listen to the Bible and nobody else. And so we won't follow the religious noise and all the crazy things that happen on the radio and on TV and other places and other things like that. Okay, we're all good. Yay. <clears throat> but the big issue, I think, is that sometimes the most religious noise and twisting of the scriptures comes from within ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. Is that we have the tendency to go straight down the line with here's what God says we should do. Here's what God says. Here's what we should follow. And we are happy to strictly and strongly apply it as we ought to to others. But then when we find ourselves perhaps in a precarious position, we're maybe not so apt to follow what God says for us. And so then we come to the scriptures and we go, well, yeah, I know it says I'm not supposed to do that, but if you only knew my circumstances... Or if you only knew what I was going through, if you only knew my background, if you only knew my family, if you only knew what was going on, we start doing the very thing that we know we're not supposed to do. That the word of God is supposed to be the only authority and it cannot be twisted or changed, rejected or altered because of our own opinions, our own experiences, our own feelings. And I think that is the most frequent place it happens is that we come into a tough circumstance. We know what God says. We know how hard that is. So there's got to be a loophole. There's got to be a way around this. There's got to be a way that that can't be right. I'm going to figure this out somehow. It's easy we point it at other people. God says, do not divorce. And then we get ourselves in the mess and you go, well, if you only knew. And we can't do that. It seems that we do that for our own circumstances where we try to bend God's law and we try to reframe it in such a way when we know exactly what God says to do. And then to make matters worse, what we will then also have the tendency to do is as we try to twist or bend or make the scriptures work for our circumstances rather than allowing it to condemn us as it ought, we will go try to find as many people as we can who agree with our position so that we can be right. 
We'll then just start, you know, okay, well, who else agrees with me? Let me tell you my story about everything that I've gone through. And here's what's happening in my life. And find how many people I can get agree. And if we can get preachers to agree, then that's even better. And if we can get other churches to agree, even better. Pretty soon we'll just get a tsunami of support and see I must be right. Even though they're not the authority. It doesn't matter how many people you can get to agree with you. It doesn't matter how many preachers you can line up. It doesn't matter who you can get. What matters is what does the plain word of God say? Because it is only the word of God that determines right and wrong. And friends, it is easy to line up all kinds of false teachers to the point where you might even have a majority and still not be right and still not be right. We need to be able to do exactly what God says. Now you'd imagine being the the man of God who was deceived by the old prophet, how you would just sit there and think, well, certainly, you know, I can't be held accountable for that. And yet he is. And I want us just to feel the weight of this event, that this event is all about a willingness to know God's will and being ready to do it. Now watch how that plays into our cliffhanger. I left you at the end of verse 10 and I said, all of a sudden, the thing about Jeroboam drops off. We turn our attention to the events of the man of God and the old prophet, but God's not done telling us about Jeroboam yet. And watch how this plays in in a very important way. Verse 33, we left off with Jeroboam. His withered hand had been healed. He had heard the declaration from God through the man of God about his worship and about his altar. And it says in verse 33, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And I want you to catch what happened here. That with Jeroboam, he has experienced God's warning. He has experienced God's mercy. He's experienced God's healing. He has experienced God's grace. He has experienced the very message of God. And nothing changed. And you believe that? Absolutely nothing changed. Withered hand, restored. Prophet says, here's a sign and it happens. And absolutely nothing changes. He still rejects the word of the Lord. And what we're being told in verse 34 is this is going to be a problem for Israel for the future generations until it's finally destroyed. And I want you to hear what Isaiah would come along later to say, because I mentioned in the prior lessons that this now sets the tone of future problems for Israel such that God is going to come along and say words like this. Isaiah 66, verse two. I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble, submissive in spirit. And trembles at my word. 
This is the kind of person that receives the favor of God. Submissive in spirit, humble, trembles at the word of God. God wants people who are humble to the point that they're willing to bow before God's word. They don't rewrite God's word. They don't ignore God's word. They allow God's word to change them. That's the idea of being humble. That's the idea of being submissive in spirit. Jesus will call it being poor in spirit. The one who will bow before the word of God, trembling before it, allowing it to change that person. And it's amazing to us that Jeroboam is unchanged by what he experienced. He's experienced the judgment of God, the word of God, the healing of God and the grace of God. But maybe we shouldn't be too surprised because we can do the same thing. Because we can very easily hear the word of God, have intercession made on our behalf and experience the mercy and grace of God and still be tempted to continue to do what we want to do and not change our own evil ways from what clearly God says we're supposed to be doing. It's easy to do the thing that Jeroboam's doing. We read Jeroboam and it's just audacious to us. How could you possibly do that in the face of healing, intercession, mercy, and grace and the clear word of the Lord? And I suppose the man of God could come to us and say the same thing. That you've experienced the grace and the mercy of God. That Jesus has interceded on your behalf. You have the clear word of God before you. And that we must listen to the word of God. It is so important that we think about our approach before God. Because it's the only way that we will ever be transformed. Is that we come to the word of God. And we are not trying to prove something or find something, but we want it to change us. We are bowing before it. Since these are the very words of God, words that are sharper than a two-edged sword, words that are for life and godliness, words that are to bring us home to eternity, then we come before it on our knees. And that we will allow it to change us rather than being like Jeroboam who says, I don't like what that says. And so seize that man. I don't want to hear it. It reminds you of the days of uh, Jeremiah. I believe it was Jehoiakim. Who as the word of the Lord is being read, he's taking his knife and he is cutting off that page and throwing it in the fire. More is read and he cuts it and throws it into the fire and cuts another slice and throws it into the fire. It is so easy to approach God that way. We cannot listen to our feelings and listen to our desires instead of what the word of God has told us to do. Now, let me pull together. We've been talking about this in the framework of Elijah and the framework of what is being set up for us as Elijah is just a couple chapters away from coming onto the scene. And what God is trying to show us, I think, first of all, is that we have Israel that wants worship to be convenient. That's chapter 12. They just give us the easy path. We just want to get it over with. And second, we are seeing that Israel did not want to listen to what God had to say. Did not want to listen to what God had to say. And I'd like for you to consider tonight 
where you stand with God on that. That when God has spoken, we must listen. And I don't know if there's been a more amazing time in history to live where you are able to have such access to the spoken word of God. People died for the opportunity and for the desire to have the whole word of God in their own language so that they could understand what it said. We live in a privileged time where here is the spoken word of God. And what is our approach to it? Do we long for it? Do we enjoy it? Do we submit to it? Do we want it to change us? Or is it just decoration? And we look the part, we look like Israel, we look like we care, but truly the word of God is not going to change us. Let us always approach the word of God with humility, with submission, and the picture there to tremble before his word, that we appreciate its importance because it truly is the word of God. Final sentence. If we don't, then we are no different than Jeroboam, taking the grace of God and rejecting it. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we can have these copies of your word. We have copies that have made it easy for us to understand. Copies that it's affordable, easy to access. And Lord, we thank you that you have seen in your divine wisdom for the time that we are in this world that in our country, how easy it is to access and to know you. And thank you for doing that. And Lord, we pray that it would always be our heart's desire to seek your word and to humbly bow before it. Lord, give us the strength and determination to cut out the distractions of life that keep us from your word. And all the more, Lord, that you would give us the courage and determination that we would listen to your word rather than trying to justify ourselves in our sinning. Lord, we pray that we would always see you as the authority, that you are ruler over our lives, and that the word that we have in our hands is to control our lives. So, Lord, help us put our sinful desires away. Help us to put away our excuses, our reasonings, and our justifications that keep us from doing what you have clearly told us to do. Help us to set aside those experiences and feelings and truly just look to you and trust you with all of our heart. And Lord, we know that we, we deal with severe consequences for our sins. Give us the strength to accept them. And Lord, always remind us that eternity is worth far more than the consequences that we may endure for doing the right thing and serving you. So help us to bow our knee before you every day, Lord. 
and always puts you at the forefront of everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.